Welcome to The Legal Eagle. We are here to explore the legal issues of the day. We will look at the criminal and civil justice system, both at the state and federal level. We will talk about the issues facing the judiciary and the bar. We plan to invite legislators, both on the state and federal level, those who make our laws, and we like to have lawyers whom we know are expert in certain areas. Um, so today we welcome to our WNHH radio program, Dan Clow, who's been a wonderful guest in the past and a leading First Amendment and open government lawyer in the state. He's also a jazz aficionado, I might add, uh, and he's of counsel at McElroy Deutsch, Mulvaney, and Carpenter in Hartford. So welcome, Dan. Good morning, Marcia. I'm so glad you made it in. <laughs> so am I, so am I. I wasn't sure that I was going to make it, but I I'm know, glad to be here. It's the I-91 problems. Oh, yeah. Always, right. Well, speaking of the First Amendment, which we just uh, alluded to, I would like to take you back a couple of days when President Trump escalated his attack on journalists, uh, saying that we are the enemy of the people. What were your thoughts when you first heard that phrase, enemy of the people? I have to admit to being very scared when mm -hmm. I heard that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, everybody understands that uh, this president engages in uh, hyperbole. Mm -hmm. But um, if you look at his track record uh, since the election, and particularly since the inauguration, and the way he's uh, his attitude towards the press, mm -hmm. um, this is the kind of attitude that one generally associates with uh, autocratic leaders, not uh, leaders of democracy. So I was very, very troubled by that uh, that remark. Particularly as it as it followed on, um, uh, you know, other incidents of of uh, that day. I exactly. So, so those other incidents occurred when, um, and I'm, I'm going to show um, our listeners, viewers, uh, the uh, front page of the New York Times, uh, whose uh, headline was "Trump intensifies criticism of FBI and journalists." condemns leakers as White House bars some reporters from briefings. And among the folks who were barred were reporters from the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, BuzzFeed, All Politico. fake news, Marshall. All fake All news. All fake news. All fake news. So now exactly. we're, <laughs> we're in the world of fake news. Um, so uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? How does a person who, I mean, the folks who read the New York Times are not going to believe a word of that. Course usually, not, right? usually, but you never know. Um, how do you how do you handle that when you're dealing with an audience or, and with the journalists? You mean how do you how do you respond to that yeah. kind of behavior? Yeah, how do you respond as a news organization? Well, so you know, there's a very there's a split of opinion which I find very interesting. Mm -hmm. So there's one group of people who say the press is making a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. by responding every time the president says something outrageous or does something outrageous, particularly with respect to the press. So that group of people says the press needs to be more selective. Don't lose sight, for example, of the big picture, or, uh, for example, the president's connections with Russia. Mm -hmm. Then there's a second group of people who say, we must call the president on everything. Mm -hmm. Every time he utters a falsehood, which is about every time he tweets, Right. Mm -hmm. Every time he goes after the press, for whatever reason, we need to call him on it. Now, I'm personally in that second camp. Mm -hmm. I think any time a president speaks, it's uh, newsworthy. Right. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and you have to pay attention to it. 
And my greatest fear is um, that uh, what they call the normalizing of this presidency, Mm. that we just begin to sort of take it in stride. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can. So I think the the media needs to um, call the president out every single time he lies. Uh, They need to call him out for attacking the press, call him out for... uh, trying to draw a wedge, so only inviting certain... Yeah, denying access. Denying access, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the White House. Um, uh, And and I think that we just have to, as the press and those who support the press, uh, we we need to keep the pressure on the president constantly whenever he misspeaks. Now, the folks that you know who would be on the other side of that argument, who would say, ignore, you know, this part, but go for that part... Are they in a particular category? Are they your lawyer friends? Or are they or they across the spectrum? It's across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly. I mean, in my professional life, I, I I just happen to see a lot of lawyers during the day. But mm-hmm. this isn't restricted to lawyers, and it's not conservative. It's not. It's neither a conservative or mm-hmm. uh, you know a democratic liberal position. I have uh, uh, you know democratic friends who are not Trump supporters who fall into the camp that says don't get caught up in every little thing he says. Well, speaking of, you know, what the press, what happens when you have this huge amount of information coming in constantly through the tweeting, and, you know, you, you'd say, okay, keep keep at it. Right. And and that may be absolutely correct, I'm not sure, but um, what, what happens often is, and I was thinking about it this morning, we still don't have a real answer on his income tax returns. No, we don't. Right. And when you were on the show last time or one of your recent times, we talked about the emoluments um, amendment. Yes. We, we talk about, you know, and that stuff sort of is, I mean, that's very important. It's, it's hugely important. But we haven't seen a story on that. No. And, and I mean, I suppose that's the, the, the risk is that by covering everything, some things get um, diminished coverage. Right. Um, but I can tell you this. Um, from a legal perspective, there mm-hmm. are already a number of lawsuits that have been filed uh, against the president mm-hmm. on this emoluments issue. And just to remind the readers, the emoluments, uh, excuse me, the listeners, mm-hmm. the, the emoluments clause is a, a provision in the Constitution that basically prevents foreign governments, foreign powers from giving gifts to mm-hmm. a president. Right. You know, we don't want our elected officials to be responsive to foreign powers. We want them responsive to the American people. And uh, if you look at the amount of money that is going, for example, to Trump's hotel in Washington, where foreign governments are sending their uh, you know, representatives, right. um, and Lord knows what his interest, business interests are around. Around the world. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think those, those kinds of legal actions will begin to take on uh, more prominence in the future. Right. So there have been lawsuits files in, in that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. We just haven't heard too much about them. That's right. Okay. They're in the very early stages. Right. Right. Um, so um, the Trump White House has also promised to um, uh, punish leakers. Leakers is, an, uh, you know, he's, he's gotten a little bit uh, angrier yes. about that as the stories have been coming out more directly and more quickly. Um, what might those efforts include? What kind of punishment do you think, as a First Amendment lawyer, his lawyers might be suggesting, or he might be suggesting? Well, there, there are two ways that governments deal with leaks, generally. 
One is to try and identify the leaker, you know, the person inside the government Mm -hmm. who um, is talking to the press. And uh, although it pains me to say this, President Obama um, (laughs) was uh, pretty rigorous Mm -hmm. about going after people inside the government. Very very much so. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Much to the chagrin of of First Amendment folks and other open government folks. Um, but that's one way that you can do it. You try and identify the leaker and then you fire him mm-hmm. or her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you think that they're leaking classified information, you bring criminal charges against them. The second way is to go after the person to whom the leak is made. And that's the press. Mm-hmm. And you start throwing reporters in prison, mm-hmm. right? Or you, you subpoena them mm-hmm. and you, uh, uh, force them or try to get them to divulge the identity of their source for a story. Right. And um, it is a uh, source of pride for many journalists to uh, claim they're a, a privilege not to divulge sources and yes. to actually go to jail for that. I mean, Judith Miller, yep. longtime reporter for the New York Times, spent, I don't know, uh, months. months. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's some. Um, it would not surprise me at all mm-hmm. if this president and this Justice Department under uh, Jeff Sessions mm-hmm. begin to go after journalists. Right, right, yeah. yeah that That's a, a pretty direct, I mean, and in fact, Obama went after journalists. Big in a time. few occasions, and yeah. A few, in a few occasions, yeah. right. So it's not um, outside the realm of the White House, uh, you know, behavior. No, not at all. But, you know, we need to, people need to remember history. For example, I mean, the Pentagon Papers, mm-hmm. one of the most consequential uh, releases of, uh, of so-called classified government information to the public, um, was done by a leaker mm-hmm. to the press. Mm-hmm. Uh, it resulted in a very famous Supreme Court case that upheld the right of the press to publish that information. Uh, and, uh, you know, like it or not, leaks are a way that uh, the press mm-hmm. makes sure the government is staying honest. Right. We, I, we need leakers. We need leakers. We um, need leakers. Even a former President Bush, the most recent one, uh, said so last night. That's right. Uh, That's right. Did you see him on that where he was, he, he, he said, I love the press and I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm I'm big time on leaks. <laughs> I'm really glad that the president did that. Uh, you know, former president. Yeah. You know, most generally speaking, former presidents fade into the background. They they think it's appropriate, right. and, and I generally agree. And to you some know, degree, he has. Pardon me. He to some degree he, I, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, I think President Bush, and we're talking about George W. Yep. Um, followed the tradition right. of presidents who leave office and then basically keep their mouth shut. Right. Uh, so the fact that he's breaking that tradition mm-hmm. and speaking out on this issue is very important. And it shows you just how troubled people on the right, as well as the left, are about this president. Uh, to our audience, if you are just tuning in, we are talking with First Amendment attorney Dan Clow, and we are on uh, the issue of the press and the FBI. Um so, Mr. Trump has also criticized the FBI, saying officials inside the FBI are leaking. Where might that lead? Where might, given the relationship of Mr. Comey, the head of the FBI, and the government, um, what's your thoughts? Take us down that route a little bit. Well, I mean, this is also very, this is very troubling. Um, I, you know, I think that uh, 
that Mr. Comey is damaged goods. Mm -hmm. uh, this goes back to the election mm -hmm. and the way he uh, handled information regarding uh, Hillary Clinton's emails, right, and the email right. server. Right. And um, But I also think that one of the reasons he felt the need to speak publicly about the status of the investigation of, uh, of Hillary Clinton was because he can't control his own people. There are agents in the uh -huh. FBI with political agendas mm -hmm. who speak to the press. Um, and once again, that, that can be good and it can be bad. Uh, Mr. Trump is finding out that he does not like it. Uh, you know, when the FBI speaks to the press. Mm -hmm. um, in this particular case, I think the reason we see what I think anybody would have to admit is a tremendous spike in leaking by the government, a huge spike. Right. Is because the people close to the president, people in the West Wing, people in the White House, people in the FBI, people in the intelligence community are scared to death. Of what this, of how he's running the government, mm -hmm. and they are using their contacts with the press, um, and the president is he's going to try and shut it down. Right. So on Sunday, uh, Sean Spicer, the press secretary, uh, decided directed his staff to turn over the cell phones. Yes. He, he got so ticked because, uh, or the president, you know, said he he wants to know who these leakers are. So he he asked them to put their cell phones, uh, the government. Um, given cell phones as well as their private cell phones yep. um, on the table so that he could inspect them. If you were advising those staffers, what would you say to them? So for next yeah. time, for next time. In other words, the next time he says, okay, put those phones on the, on the table and go look at them. Well, <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> if, uh, that's a great question. <laughs> Let's put it this way. If they had hired me as their lawyer, right, I would say, first the staffers. of all, okay. right, don't yeah. leave a trail on your phone. You know, don't leave your text messages. <laughs> don't leave your emails. Have a clean phone every have morning. A, have a clean phone every morning. Don't leave the copies of the phone numbers you've recently called, you know, your recent call list. Just don't do it so that when that kind of request comes in, you can you can turn over your phone and uh, and not worry that it's going to show anything. Right, and you don't lose your job. That's the, right. The danger that they face is... They're gone. Yeah. And look, uh, if this were a normal presidency, right, and I keep using that word normal versus abnormal because I really think this is an abnormal one. Any employer, including the president of the United States, has the right to expect and demand loyalty mm -hmm. from his or her employees. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not for one moment suggesting that a president has to, in a normal presidency, tolerate uh, disloyalty and uh, aides who are trying to stab him in the back by leaking. Um, but this is not a normal presidency. Uh, right. and, uh, and I just think these leaks are a, a symptom of the abnormality of it. So if you were advising, let's say, beyond the staffers in the White House, um, let's say a local newspaper, uh, it might not come to, to uh, local in the sense that, you know, in Connecticut when we... Only the Connecticut Mirror right now actually has a, I think, maybe the Connecticut News Junkie does too, has somebody in Washington. Hmm. Um, but we used to when, right. when, our, when our press was, was functioning better and, and uh, had more people, listen, you know, when, when it was, a, its industry hadn't really collapsed. Right. 
Um, so if you were advising, let's say, the Los Angeles Times or the New York Times going forward, given this headline, um, what, what would you, what, and you had a plan, because the Times isn't going to pull its people from the press room. Right. Um, and you're looking at a four-year term, year presidency, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what do you do? What, what, what do you tell um, legally? the these newspapers well legally i mean i would say do your job mm-hmm. above all do your above job. all do your job mm-hmm. it's more important than ever that you do your job now mm-hmm. um and i might have a little seminar you know in-house <laughs> seminar mm-hmm. just to remind mm-hmm. journalists of where the legal line is yeah what the law is actually. what the law is because there's the first amendment and then there's the law yes yeah, absolutely. And Could there you are, talk to that? Yeah. Well, there are things a journalist can do and things a journalist can't do mm-hmm. in terms of revealing information from mm-hmm. a source. Right? So if a, government, uh, if a government official comes to you and re- turns over documents or reveals information, and you as a journalist did not, um, for example, pay uh, you know, for that information or bribe or do something to... Um, try and press the government official to do that. You're in the clear. You've not ga- engaged in any illegal conduct. Right. right. You have a relationship with the source. Right. And the and source comes to you to, and shares the information. Right. You are entitled to print that. Mm-hmm. And of course, we always want um, and expect newspapers to exercise professional editorial judgment. You know, mm-hmm. So if somebody gives you classified information, um, that doesn't mean you automatically stick it on the front page. There may be certain details. Uh, well, it's also you know. a certain um, understanding. I mean, some information might be on background. Sure, absolutely. Without a name necessarily, or some would be direct. So, That's so right. the reporter and the source would work that out. That's right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would remind, I would always remind reporters of the need to protect the confidentiality of sources. Mm-hmm. But if you do your job, if you're not, um, if you're not, uh, you know, bribing anybody or engaging in illegal activity yourself mm-hmm. to acquire the information, mm-hmm. then you're entitled to accept what a what a government official uh, gives you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to, uh, of course, confirm it, but mm-hmm. you haven't crossed any legal line. It is perfectly lawful mm-hmm. for the press to rely uh, or, or accept mm-hmm. information from leakers. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. So the, so the seminar would cover that part. Sure. And also the part about the phones, turning yep. over your phones. Mm-hmm. Anything else, you think? Well, uh, you know, this this crosses the line from my work as a lawyer more to, a you know, an editor, and I right. don't purport to be one, but I would certainly be encouraging people to continue to cultivate their sources in the government. <laughs> <laughs> right, <clears throat> across the line. Across right. The, right. So, um <clears throat> That's uh, on my mind just because I watched, uh, I love watching um, All the President's Men. So yes. I saw it the other night. <laughs> yeah. I always have that image of Deep Throat in the... Uh, in the garage. In the garage, in the shadows. In the shadows, right. yeah. Well, and that's often... The, but nowadays, it's a little bit different because so much comes in through perhaps a text. Yes. Will you meet me here? Yep. Or can we talk there? Um, it, it's a little bit... The cell phone has transformed... Uh, or the smartphone. I yeah, say. absolutely. How how reporters operate a little yep. bit. Um, 
So when it comes to leaks, can you compare uh, Trump the candidate with Trump the president, perhaps? No, it's so much fun to compare Trump the candidate with Trump the president. We all know Trump the president loved leaks, loved anonymous sources. So let's go back when when, um, (laughs) Mr. Trump was the leading the leading proponent of the uh, ridiculous birther issue with President Obama. Okay. You know, okay. the notion that he was not born in the United yeah, States. President Obama was not born in the United States. Right, right. and that his birth certificate, you right. know, was fake. And, right. uh, and he, he did that for years. For Trump many did. years. Yes. In fact, I mean, he really, uh, look, he's always been a celebrity, but politically speaking, mm-hmm. you know, in the four years or so, well, eight years the President uh, Obama was in office, he pushed, he Donald Trump pushed this ridiculous absolutely ridiculous position but what he said once and i remember this because i just looked it up the other day to confirm my recollection he says a very highly placed and reliable source has told me that there are problems uh with this birth certificate of the president that there are questions about its legitimacy so at that point in time you know mr trump was quite happy to rely on anonymous uh, anonymous sources which i have no doubt completely made up it was a total right. fiction right. right right uh and look we all remember the campaign wasn't that long ago when he would get up at a debate or tell the papers i love WikiLeaks. you know god bless edward snowden i hope the russians hack you know hillary's emails more right uh, so right. right hello hello uh, he's done a complete 180 uh, as as president, and um, and I think that's very telling. That's yes, that's very telling, right. and, and and not that easy for journalists to remind everybody daily about this. You know, we're we're talking in, in only a small historical moment here, a yeah. couple of months, right? past past four, five, six months, right. sure. And where's Steve Stephen Bannon in all of this? Oh, well, that's a good question. So, if you're a fan of Saturday Night Live, he appears as the Grim Reaper, <laughs> right. you know, in the. <laughs> Uh, things. I mean, Steve Bannon it remains a mystery to many people, although there was a wonderful piece in the New York Times um, uh, this weekend, you know, mm-hmm. the Sunday Times, uh, a deep sort of background piece about uh, Steve Bannon, uh, whose views have, uh, his views have evolved. There is, um, I think you know, many people like to just say that he's a white nationalist or, uh, you know, a, a, a racist, uh, anti-Semite. I don't think those labels are very help, um, very helpful in understanding him. He clearly do, does have a, uh, an, what's the word, ethno, a white ethno mm-hmm. ideology. Uh, you know, the United States should be a white sovereign nation, mm-hmm. and we should not be letting uh, immigrants in from countries that uh, don't um, represent our traditional Western you know, values. Right. He's also an editor. Well, and and that, right? that, that, that is an interesting situation, other than his other philosophies and the uh, idea that he is the chief strategist for the president. He also has an editor's brain. Mm-hmm in terms of some of these decisions. And that could have an impact. I, well, mean, I mean, it does, but I'm just wondering, we've not had that in the White House in the past. 
that's an interesting question. I mean, we've certainly have had uh, people with a press, a serious press journalistic background Correct. who've gone to the White House and not just as, uh, you know, the spokesperson or mm-hmm. you know, press uh, folks, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, advisors mm-hmm. to the president. Um, so I don't, I don't think that is uh, unusual. particularly unusual, okay. but Mr. Bannon's background as an editor of Breitbart uh, News, right. which mm-hmm. was a, a very, very right-wing conservative site, and which was aligned with what is called the alt-right. And is. I mean, is. Is, yeah. and in fact, there are Breitbart reporters. Absolutely. In and the they're, White House. They're favorite covering, reporters. Covering, right, yeah. right. So when, you know, the alt-right, again, is basically a white nationalist sort of position. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the New York Times article is very interesting. It basically says that, that Bannon was deeply, deeply moved and influenced by the, uh, the 9-11 attacks and that mm-hmm. it fundamentally sort of changed his view of the world and, and his approach. And um, I, think he is, um, I think he is a master manipulator, mm-hmm. and I think that's dangerous. And also, it's kind of, kind of interesting that Trump is still tweeting. Oh, he, he can't live without Twitter, right? And he still and he doesn't even tweet much on his POTUS account. He still keeps his at real Donald Trump account, right? And tweets at uh, you know three in the morning. So one of the most interesting things about uh, that you would learn from his tweet uh, mm-hmm. his tweets not mm-hmm. only are the content of the tweets, but if you look at the time, the timing of them, Mm -hmm. you learn, for example, that while he was receiving the daily intelligence briefing in the white house, which is a, a, should be a rather solemn moment. So traditionally each morning Mm -hmm. presidents receive a a briefing from Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, representatives of the intelligence community. Right. Who work very hard to get it to him by a certain hour. Absolutely. And I think we want our president to pay attention to daily intelligence briefings, Mm -hmm. but you can look at his Twitter and see that while he was receiving this briefing, clearly his mind was elsewhere because he was sending out a, you know, a tweet, um, during the, uh, the uh, special operations raid a couple weeks ago uh, in um, uh, Yemen. Yemen, right. Okay. Was the president in the situation room? No. He was tweeting. <laughs> what do you... Uh, so my bias is coming through, obviously, from my tone in the words, but um, I, I find that very, very troubling. Yeah, it is. Um, so one of the other issues that uh, <clears throat> came to light in the last week or so, uh, on pretty much on the local level, but but um, in, in just in general in the states, was uh, Governor Malloy in Connecticut and the governor in Vermont, um, and they had to sort of uh, talk about. Uh, come, hold on, I'm just looking for this my my question here. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, they had to deal with states' rights issues yep. uh, when it comes to whether or not the police or uh, local superintendents of schools should provide the federal government ICE uh, with information about documented or undocumented people or children in, in the midst in the schools. And Governor Malloy and Governor and the Governor of Vermont both came out with statements saying, you know, we're not going to cooperate with this. That's right. Um, and basically stood up to Trump, uh, at least somehow. So we are sort of relearning in the process of this presidency the rights of states. It's not something that I think typically most people in most states would be thinking about. That's true. Right? That's true. So um, 
tell me about what you thought about what happened, you know, when, when, when the governor in, in Connecticut came up with this, uh, you know, made a declaration um, about how they would not cooperate with this uh, plan and what the impact will be for other states' rights issues, perhaps. So let, let me try and answer that question mm. from a couple different perspectives. There's a purely legal mm. question, and then there's just sort of a policy mm-hmm. you know, question. Yes. So on the policy side, I absolutely support the governor mm-hmm. and um, the strength with which he asserted this message. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president wants to basically co-opt state and local law enforcement officers to do the federal government's job. Right. You know, it, ICE's it, job. Yeah, knock on the door. Knock on the door. <clears throat> right. All right. Now, there is a reason. There is a reason that local police in particular, in many communities, don't want to, in essence, be deputized by the federal government to act as immigration officers. Mm-hmm. So you have communities with uh, significant immigrant populations. Right. Sometimes, mm-hmm. I mean, some, they're illegals, uh, you know, sometimes. The police need, the local police need to do their job. So mm-hmm. if there's a domestic violence incident, mm-hmm. right, or if there's some crime, the police need to be able to knock on doors and do an investigation and get information so that they can solve that crime. Mm-hmm. If an uh, immigrant community is afraid to talk to the local police mm-hmm. because they think that the local police are suddenly going to put on their federal jacket and become you know, uh, immigration officers, grab somebody and deport them, they're not going to talk to the local police, and that is going to make it much more difficult for uh, local police to do their job, which is their primary job, which is to protect the community that employs them. Right. right. And also, I think the police departments, at least that I know, uh, work hard at community relations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maintain, developing trust right. between <clears throat> police officers and the local community is critical to a a well-functioning uh, law enforcement operation. And when you when you try and force a local police officer to become, in essence, uh, an immigrant federal immigration officer, that totally undermines the trust. So that's the policy rationale. Mm-hmm. Right? And as I said, I completely support the governor, um, and um, and I think he was right to do it, you know, to say what he said. Right. And also, he urged them, but they don't have to listen to him. Is that right? It's a may. It's a may. It's It's a may, may. not a must. That's true. I mean, he certainly can dictate the state, the state police officers. But at the local government level, you know, we have a very strong um, home rule Mm -hmm. act, and and even though towns and municipalities are creatures of the state, Mm -hmm. they also have a great deal of autonomy, including with respect to their local police forces. So the governor legally doesn't. you know, order, order right, local right. police department. He suggests strongly. He can suggest very strongly, and he did. And mm-hmm. again, I said that I, I support that. Um, but here's the interesting legal question, because you may raise this issue of states' rights. Mm-hmm. So um, conservatives love to argue federalism, right? Mm-hmm. Federalism is the notion that you have two sovereignties. You have a federal government that's sovereign, and then you have 50 states that are sovereign. And they love to say that there are things that, uh, issues that ought to be decided at the state level. So, for example, gay marriage was a classic one of those examples. Mm -hmm. This shouldn't be decided by the federal government. It shouldn't be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. This is an issue for individual states. Uh, 
let's mm-hmm. talk about LGBTQ rights, mm-hmm. right? This is an issue for the states, mm-hmm. right? Always about the states until <laughs> we're talking about immigration enforcement. When suddenly the federal government wants to say, no, what is this state business? You do, you states do what we tell you. And um, you better cooperate with us. You better follow our lead. And here's the kicker. The federal government gives a considerable amount of money mm-hmm. to uh, you know, police departments around the country you know, to support law enforcement. Correct. Mm-hmm. And the federal government uh, can, can put strings on that money. And it can say, if you don't cooperate with us, you're going to lose your funding. That's the threat. That's the threat. And it's a, pow- it's a potent threat. I think we've seen Miami just the other week mm-hmm. um, uh, say that uh, it would cooperate with the federal government. And I think from reading uh, the news, you know, the stories about what was going on down there, they were, Miami was very concerned that it would lose a lot of federal funding if it didn't cooperate with uh, ICE. Looking forward, what do you think is going to happen here in the in the federal state issue over immigration. I mean, uh, project it if you could, may or might, or in the next two months. Well, I think there will continue to be a split. Mm-hmm. That is, there will mm-hmm. be states and local communities that decide to side with the administration and cooperate, and I think there will be other communities that don't. And I think it very much depends on um, whether the state is red or blue and what the local sort of uh, electorate looks like. Right, You know. right. And it's going to get a little bit more thorny because the budget is coming up. The federal budget is coming up. And and we don't necessarily have a president who understands how to um, uh, make more cohesive the Republican Party. I mean, there are lots of splits within the Republican Party, particularly over the the budget, and it's going to get worse. Right. And so what do you sort of say when you can't, you don't have... You don't have, usually Republican leaders or Democratic leaders understand their role as the head of the party. Yes. I don't think this president understands his role as the head of the party. That's my view of it because he's not necessarily talking to the other parts of his administration who may have a different view to, to, to resolve it. Right. And wait, you know, he's giving an address to a um, you know joint session of Congress uh, tonight. Tonight, yes. Um, and, and the budget, his proposed budget will be a major feature of that. You know, he's proposing a $54 billion, 10% increase in defense spending, which he's going to pay for by taking money away from um, other programs. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that he can't stay in the EPA Right. Uh, right, they're down. They're down. Mm. Um, it doesn't seem to have much respect for the Department of Energy um, and so on and so forth. But, you know, so the, this president was elected mm-hmm. without and in spite of opposition from establishment Republicans. Mm-hmm. He doesn't owe establishment Republicans anything. Mm-hmm. And I think he takes full advantage of, of the lack of debt, if you will, political debt to the establishment. Would this would this include the Speaker of the House? It definitely includes the Speaker of the House. And I think we are going to see a you know a great mix up. The Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan mm-hmm. um considered the sort of budget mastermind um you know congressman, Republican congressman in the House. He's all about uh fixing entitlements 
cutting Social Security, Security Medicare, Medicare, Medicaid, Medicaid mm-hmm. all right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where he thinks the action is. That's where, you know, he has pushed the party for years. Mm-hmm. The president doesn't seem remotely interested in having that discussion. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, so there is going to be, yeah, so that, that that's another aspect of it. Um, so how does the election of President Trump unveil new problems within the checks and balances of our constitutional system? Well, so I love that question because this is where I get to put on my little law professor hat. Right? Okay, go okay. for it. <laughs> I have fun. So, I mean, let's go back to your basic, um, uh, you know, high school civics class. Uh-huh. Right? Yes. And what are we all taught in high school in civics? Mm. We, when, when we were taught about the design of the American government, we learned there are three branches. Correct. Right? Mm-hmm. The executive branch, which is the president, Congress, and then the courts. And the standard story that our teachers tell us is that the, the founding fathers in their infinite wisdom um, created three separate branches and al- distributed power among them so that each branch would be a check on the potential abuse of power by another branch. Mm-hmm. So that's the basic <clears throat> sort of uh, you know story. Understanding. Okay? Yes, yeah, right. Here's the problem. I mean, when the Constitution was designed, political parties did not exist. The Constitution was designed in seventeen, you know, the late 1780s. Mm-hmm. Before parties, as we understand them, existed. It is mm-hmm. not uh, built um, uh, with the concept of ideological diverse parties. Mm-hmm. So here's the problem. Today, you have a Congress that is controlled by Republicans, both the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. And you have the presidency that's mm-hmm. controlled by Republicans. Is Congress serving as a check on this precedent, like it's supposed to under traditional uh, sort of uh, you know civics theory? No, the the Republicans in Congress are showing themselves willing to turn the other cheek at serious serious allegations of misconduct by the president and folks in his office, which if committed by a Democrat would have led to impeachment inquiries and special prosecutors and independent investigations. They are not doing any of that. They're willing to tolerate things from this president that they would never, ever tolerate from a a Democratic president. And what that shows is that Congress is not a check on the president. When you have a single party controlling both branches of government, the checks and balances break down. So we, if you're just joining us and turning in, tuning in, we are talking with First Amendment attorney Dan Clow, who's just put on his professor's hat, and now is going. <laughs> uh, that's a sort of fascinating issue now. Now what, and that could explain why there's not a, a real that the impeachment idea hasn't taken off yet. That's exactly right. Um, people thought it would by, I mean, at least Democrats thought it might by. Is there another route? Is the press the other route? Well, I think the fourth estate, the press, um, there are two checks that still are viable. Mm -hmm. The press is the first Mm -hmm. one and perhaps the most important one. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I say, press, keep doing your job. Shine that spotlight on this presidency. Maybe you have to have a hashtag, not fake news. Not fake news, exactly, (laughs) just to get people interested. But the courts also Mm -hmm. remain uh, a check. Right. Um, you know, uh, going back to the presidency of George W. Bush um, and uh, the issue of enemy combatants mm-hmm. and um, the the Supreme Court 
demonstrated its willingness Mm -hmm. to put its foot down and say to the president something like, war is not a blank check to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we are going to depend on the courts more and more over, uh, you know, the Mm -hmm. term of this president to um, use their uh, independence Mm -hmm. to check abuses of power. Right. Assuming that the right cases are brought. That's true. But we've seen it already. Well, we've seen it, yes. You know, we've seen it with, with the president's executive order, you know, a travel ban. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so um, I... Uh, yeah, and they haven't issued a new one yet, have they? They have not. The administration says it's going to issue a new one. And it's interesting, you know, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is out in California, yes, um, has ref- is not stopping the case. There, in other words, there's no pause, mm-hmm. which the government had asked for, mm-hmm. uh, saying, hey, we're going to issue a new order, so why bother having a case under the old order? And I think the Ninth Circuit basically said, show us the new order, and then we'll think about you know dismissing this case. But talk is cheap. So, so it's still ongoing. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. The government's briefs are due, I think, on March 10th. Mm-hmm. So it's moving along. Oh, fascinating. So quickly, just back here in Connecticut, um, um, under a very important aspect of the freedom of the press, um, we have the freedom of information issue, uh, which sort of goes along a little bit with what we're talking about uh, at the state level. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a little news about FOI in recent weeks, and could you put on your FOI hat? And um, tell us what's happening at the state level with regard to fees and complaints. I'd be delighted to do that. So um, let me just mention as a a disclosure matter that I'm president of an organization in Connecticut called the Connecticut Council on Freedom of Information, which I think you are familiar with, Marsha. And I am a member of the council as well. (laughs) Full disclosure. (laughs) So it's an organization that promotes, you know, freedom of information laws. And one thing we do is monitor legislation during the legislative session that might impact FOI laws one way or the other. So there was a proposal uh, that... uh, a bill that was introduced. They had a public hearing on it yesterday. I testified at it. Mm-hmm. And the bill proposes to charge anyone who wants to file a complaint with the Freedom of Information Commission $125. Mm. $125 for uh, the privilege of filing a complaint. And who did this? Who, who brought the bill? So this was brought up by Representative Dunsby, mm-hmm. who's a freshman representative from the town of Easton. And he's also the uh, Easton town for selectmen. And he's responding to a legitimate issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, The reason that he proposed this fee is to reduce what he sees as the filing of vexatious FOI complaints. Mm-hmm. Now, citizens who are using the FOI simply to harass mm-hmm. uh, our public officials, not in order to... Uh, get documents that are sort of relevant to decision-making in a democracy. And he is right that there is a, a, a problem, a mm-hmm. small, very small problem with a small number of people, perhaps a dozen or so. Who bring, who bring endless FOI. Who bring endless FOI requests. Right. So uh, those mm-hmm. of us in the open government community don't dispute mm-hmm. the uh, problem he's trying to address. We just think that a filing fee on everyone mm-hmm. is uh, a hammer mm-hmm. to address a problem that really needs just a scalpel. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've testified against it. Many newspapers across the state have written editorials opposing the filing fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's also a concern that it's like the proverbial camel's nose under the tent. 
<laughs> you know, once you start a filing fee, then, oh, the next session, let's raise the filing fee. And wouldn't it be good to help out our, our you know, budget crisis if we raise the filing fee even more? So uh, we don't want to go down that road. Mm-hmm. Have you thought of another way to handle the folks who continuously do this? We are. CCFOI um, is working closely with the Freedom of Information Commission to develop a proposal, a proposal that would give the commission itself mm-hmm. the authority to um, identify the particular individuals who are the frequent flyers, shall we say, Correct. Mm-hmm. and um, limit their ability to file vexatious complaints. So it would be a much more targeted approach. Uh, po- targeted population, yes. Okay. Well, it looks like our time is up. It goes very fast when the topics are so interesting, and we're right in the middle of some fascinating, fascinating topics. We want to thank Dan Clow for joining us here at our New Haven studio to give us his insight into the uh, major legal issues of the day. Thank you, Dan, for being with us today. Thank you, Marsha, for having me. And so, folks out there, you can go to the newhavenindependent.org website to get a podcast of this broadcast. You can listen to the wide variety of shows that the station puts on every day, and you can go to Facebook, and you can watch us and listen to us uh, at will, (laughs) as they say. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.